Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Sleeping Dogs, as recorded by Blackberry Smoke on their top ten album, The Whippoorwill, and co-written by Gordon Kennedy, our guest on this episode of Songcraft. Kennedy is a Nashville-based songwriter, producer, and guitarist, best known for co-writing Change the World, which Eric Clapton took to the top of the charts and kept in the top 20 on Billboard's adult contemporary rankings for an unprecedented 81 weeks. That success won Kennedy a Grammy Award for Song of the Year and turbocharged his commercial songwriting career. After scoring a number three Billboard country hit with You Move Me in 1998, Garth Brooks went on to release 10 more Kennedy-penned songs on his 1999 Chris Gaines album. These include the top five pop hit Lost in You and It Don't Matter to the Sun, which fell just shy of the top 20 on the country chart. Kennedy has enjoyed additional charting singles such as Faith Hill's It Will Be Me, The Clark Family Experiences Meanwhile Back at the Ranch, Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood's Love Will Always Win, Carrie Underwood's The More Boys I Meet, and Bonnie Raitt's I Can't Help You Now, I Will Not Be Broken, and Gypsy and Me. Other artists who've recorded Gordon's songs include Tim McGraw, George Strait, Allison Krauss, Nickel Creek, Joan Osborne, Bruce Hornsby, Winona, Jerry Reed, Martina McBride, Kristen Chenoweth, and more. He has worked extensively with Ricky Skaggs and Peter Frampton, earning two Grammy nominations for his work on Skaggs' Mosaic album and winning a Grammy for producing Frampton's 2006 album, Fingerprints. His most recent project is called Heal, a celebrated reunion album with his mid-1990s band, Dogs of Peace. You know, you look at Gordon Kennedy's career and, and kind of the way it's played out, and it always seems like that guy has been able to do things with people he loves, you know, working with his friends. Yeah, it seems that there are people who strategize about how to navigate the music industry, but Gordon instead uh, strikes me as a guy who focuses on relationships, and because of that, you can hear a lot of joy uh, in his voice as he talks about his career because he's, he's kind of put people first. Yeah, I mean, he's he's worked with his high school buddy, Dan Huff, and then he's got his friends, Tommy Sims and Wayne Kirkpatrick, and, and he's buddies now with Peter Frampton. It seems like even the work he did with Garth Brooks, like they walk away friends, you know, he's got yeah. relationships. You know, and I just hope that uh, one day you and I can have that sort of uh, regard for one another in our work here on Songcraft together, that we can sort of feel like we're friends. Yeah, you know, I think if we just keep plugging away, yeah. that it will eventually come and we'll become a little more comfortable yeah just uh just in terms of enjoying one another's company right right <laughs> go beyond the witty repartee and actually be able to maybe have lunch together one of these days after yeah, we do this. i look forward to that maybe today <laughs> <laughs> well for now let's get to uh, gordon kennedy sounds good gordon welcome to songcraft Thank you, fellas. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. Um, you know, for, for those who are not aware, um, your dad is is Jerry Kennedy, who's a, a multi-Grammy winning producer who ran Mercury Records in Nashville. He produced tons of hits for artists such as Jerry Lee Lewis, Tom T. Hall, uh, Roger Miller. He played guitar on some insanely legendary recording sessions like Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man. He played on Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde sessions. 
um, just a, a real luminary in, in Nashville music business history. Um, what are some lessons about the music business that you picked up from your dad at an early age that have served you well as you've navigated your own path in this business? Well, I would say, first of all, you know, just it would be the environment that I grew up in hmm. that had such an influence and an effect on me. If you can imagine being a, you know, six-year-old kid coming in from, you know, even kindergarten, as young as, as young as that, walking into a basement that the first thing you're confronted with are several guitar cases, maybe a couple of amplifiers, upright piano on the wall to the right behind you, and then and then a jukebox that spun 45s on the far end of the room. Cool. And knowing how to knowing how to turn that jukebox on, right? You know, without having to put coins nice. in it. There's a little toggle switch on the back of the jukebox, and I would shock myself every once in a while. <laughs> Um, but it was always worth it, you know, to get to play these records. And I would lay on the floor in front of this jukebox and feel the room kind of shake a little bit, mm-hmm. listening to, uh, you know, Buster Brown, um, Fannie Mae, mm, uh, right. and of course, in, even instrumental records that my dad was doing for Mercury and, and Smash back in the days, right. um, Willie and the, Willie and the Hand Jive, part one yeah. and two. And, <laughs> right, right. And then of and then, of course, so add to that that he would walk in to the house every once in a while, and under his arm he would have reel-to-reel tapes, and it would be from whatever was the freshest you know thing he had done in the studio that day. And you mentioned some of the artists, and and uh, and then there was also the family vacations where we would be in the car driving, say, to Gatlinburg, and every few minutes my dad reaching for the radio volume and turning it up, going. I think I played on this. <laughs> and then, of course, my father in 2007 got inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame right. here in Nashville the year they opened that Hall of Fame and Museum along with six other fellows there collectively known as the A-Team right. players. And when, when Brenda Lee inducted them, she said these seven guys account for over 130,000 recording sessions. Good wow. night, man. Jeez. And so that, but so that's the environment now. Specifically, how it would relate to me, maybe as a songwriting and the craft of songwriting years later. And of course, it took me a long time to to get this right. But you know, I had a a dad who brought me the whatever he had recorded that day in the studio with Roger Miller, of all people. <laughs> right. And then, but he would also bring me my the first Beatles album. Yeah. And so I kind of look at those two things as my bookends as far as influences go. There's a lot you can put between those two artists, but the the main thing about each of those artists to me, and even it resonates to me as a guitar player, I've figured out after all these years, is that the song is the thing. Hmm. And and it's even, it's even influenced me as a player, and so I just was learning from an early age that the song is the thing that matters the most. Mm, right. And and even and, you know my dad would would teach me without saying it, but he was teaching me that the guitar parts you added to somebody's record needed to be to, you know to put the song first and mm-hmm. not be you know you don't go in there trying to put your DNA all over something and right right. And uh, marking the tree, as it were, it's it's already what it is because of that songwriter. 
Right. And it's obvious that your dad kind of had that similar sense of because he was producing Roger Miller and producing hits for, for Tom T. Hall. And, you know, as the guy who signed uh, these artists, you know, songwriter artists, they were people who are now revered as legends of, of Nashville songwriting, but were writing stuff that was kind of off kilter for the typical country song of the day. And, and your dad clearly you know, heard that and, and recognized that these are guys whose songs need to be heard. And so we're going to go, you know, turn these people into to artists and, and let the world hear their songs. And, and you know, I, I think that, that those who are familiar with the history of the Nashville music industry, um, you know, those who have dug into it a little bit are, are familiar with your dad and, and, and are aware of, of, of his contributions. Um, but I also want to ask you about your mom, who was known as Linda Brannon and was a singer and was a member of the Louisiana Hayride, which was a, a very popular radio show that rivaled the Grand Ole Opry back in the 50s. And um, she recorded eight or nine singles that I'm aware of for like the Ram and Chess and Phillips and Epic labels back in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, what influence did, did she have on your musical development? That same thing that would happen when my dad would bring home the, the tapes, you know, for the sessions from that day, my mom would do about once a year. It would be like we'd all get in the den and listen to a bunch of her records. Yeah. Huh. And it seemed, to, it seemed for my mom that that was enough. Huh. She just liked to do that every once in a while. It wasn't. She never spoke about it. She never had any, I wish I would have, or... Or I missed this and such and such. But she did tell me once I was growing up that she had, after the third son was born in our family, she thought she might go and sing a little bit again. So she took one road gig up to Ohio in the early to mid-60s and and gave it, you know, one outing to see if she would, you know, want to put her toe back in the water, as it yeah. were. And she, mm. she was, But she, she decided when she got there that, absolutely not she missed her kids and this is not right she gave it up but she she told me um after i had grown up that she said an interesting thing happened on that trip there was a woman who came up to her another singer on the same show who came up to her and said linda brannon oh i just love the sound of your name linda brannon just so pretty or something right. and mom said she thanked her and didn't think any more about it she said you know another year or so goes by and all of a sudden that singer has this big hit out on the radio and had changed her name to Jackie DeShannon. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and so put a little love in your heart, right. you know, and, and so that's not her real name, but, but I thought, well, she, she liked the sound of Linda Brannon and right. went with Jackie DeShannon. So wow. I thought that was funny. A little, little bit of great. trivia there. That's but awesome. But yeah, Mom was sort of more, her influence on me would be more she would be more a fan of like the R&B thing. And my dad, while he played on, you know, some Brooke Benton and Johnny Adams and Peggy Scott, and Jojo Benson duets. And there was a, a number of things he did. though they were few and far between R&B things. Mom was really a fan of Aretha Franklin and Junior Walker and the All-Stars, right. Sam and Dave. Those were the, 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 the things that she would play in the car when we were driving around. And so, that, so she would bring a little more of uh, that influence onto what was, you know, a steady diet of music for me growing sure. up. 
you went to the same high school that Scott and I did, Brentwood Academy. Yeah. And graduated right. a few years ahead of us. And what's fascinating is that you were a track basketball and football star in those days and were selected as the most athletic student in your senior class. Now, usually the guys who go on to professional music careers are not necessarily the star athletes in high school. I think Scott and I can attest. Um, you know, I was, I, I was spending more time trying to learn a descending chord progression uh, and, and my abs suffered for it. But you know, developing your musical chops and excelling as an athlete, I mean, those are both pursuits that require a lot of devotion and practice. Um, discipline, yeah. yeah. How did you find the time to, to kind of grow in both areas? Well, fortunately for me, I had uh, a father who was a guitar player, but he also, at one point in his uh, life, held the state of Louisiana's uh, record for the freshman javelin throw, which wow. got huh. broken by Terry Bradshaw years later. Really? Wow. But there was a guy named Dan Huff that I went to school with who was, he, like, you were, like you're talking about now, he was a great baseball player. Hmm. But he was so driven with the music thing, and especially the guitar. And when I need, you know, having a dad who was a guitar player, and, and you know, there would be those times in my life when I would think, hey, wait a minute, I'd see a friend of mine playing guitar and think in my head, I'm supposed to be playing a guitar. Hmm. My <laughs> father's a guitar player. But I was also being pooled into and fueled by the desire to be on, on the team and, and play in sports. And, but having Dan Huff as a friend in high school, and he drove me to discipline, you know, discipline myself and to pursue you know, becoming a better guitar player, just if nothing else, by virtue of the fact that I wanted to keep up with him. Yeah. And so that was way important in, in um, my developmental years with the instrument and, and still to this day i probably don't look at the guitar as a this is a thing that i want to master it's a you know something i want to be the best at or it, i never it, it doesn't occur to me to be this a great guitar player it it, it winds up for you know for me all these years later the guitar is is something that is part of the creative process and and the tools that that are necessary for me to, you know, to create and do music that I do, and be, you know, as a songwriter, the thing about being a songwriter is it will ultimately allow you to be able to do everything or give you the opportunity to do everything else that you know how to do at some point. You know, yeah. And, and for for those who might not necessarily be familiar with the name, I mean, Dan Huff is a guy who went on to to play for Michael Jackson and and Whitney Houston in the studio when he was out in L.A. and came back to Nashville and has produced everybody from Faith Hill to Megadeth and is one all producer of the year at the ACMs. I mean, the guy is like a, a production and, and guitar hero. So it's pretty crazy that you guys were actually, uh, you know, schoolmates and, and playing guitar together back in uh, back in those early days. Yeah, I got to watch him in his... Uh growing up years become that guy yeah, yeah so cool well and you started to get your first professional recording experience pretty early i mean I, I think the first professional recordings that feature gordon kennedy were some johnny rodriguez sessions cut in august of 1977 that was just before your senior year of high school um and then you went on to belmont university uh, where scott also went to school and had the opportunity to play on a bunch of stuff including reba mcintyre's first number one can't even get the blues how did you start getting involved in playing these sessions so early and so young well 
know, my father produced both of those artists, and at the time where he thought I could handle, you know, something like that, he presented an opportunity for me to go first and play a guitar solo and then do a twin guitar part with him in an overdub session for the Johnny Rodriguez um, album, Just For You. Okay. So I, I did both of those things, and so that was the summer after my junior year in high school. And and then once I was at Belmont, I would start, you know, he would hire me to come play on tracking sessions, some acoustic guitar things at first, sitting next to the great Chip Young, who played on Dolly Parton's Jolene and Billy right. Swan's I Can Help, and he produced, played on, you know, did stuff with Jerry Reed, who's another phenomenal scary musician uh, <laughs> right. that can't can't be replaced yeah um so so i got to 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 meet my heroes growing up and then eventually kind of join them in progress as it were and very intimidating but it would actually end up being the reason why i would leave belmont after three years i had um we were told that um if you missed the seminar you would have an f on your transcript so we all Jeez. went to the first seminar and it was some really strange thing about where to buy black formal wear in New York City. That was the <laughs> subject matter. I remember that, and I still have the Guitar Player magazine I was reading during the whole thing. <laughs> but we were, but we all answered the bell and answered roll call, so we were there, transcript safe. And then the second one they put on the calendar happened to fall on the same date as uh, one of those Reba McIntyre sessions that you wow. mentioned yeah. I was booked for. And so I went to go see the head of the music business school and asked for an excused absence. And the guy launched into a speech to me about how do you expect to make it in the music industry if you don't attend these functions that wow. we are putting. And I'm like, yeah, but Reba, but Mercury, right? <laughs> right. But, you know, and it just didn't go anywhere. So I wound up actually departing at that time. And right. of course, it, you know, I don't look back on it and say it was the best move I ever made. Um, everything's wonderful with Belmont and yeah. I happen to really love that yeah. university now and, yeah. and did back then too. I just was, uh, right. you know, kind of a young, somewhat ignorant, somewhat anxious. Yeah. To, <laughs> well, well, this doesn't, this didn't work out, so I'll go somewhere else. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and it was a couple of years after your time at Belmont that you kind of got your first long-term gig when you joined the Christian rock band Whiteheart and replaced your buddy, Dan Huff. Um, and you know, I know you spent six years with Whiteheart, and not only did you play on the albums Hotline, Don't Wait for the Movie, Emergency Broadcast, and Freedom, but you're also credited as a writer on most of the songs. Um, in what ways did your songwriting kind of grow and develop during your tenure with that band? And what song would you choose from that era and say you're most proud of? Wow. Um, the Freedom album. That's where I think the group um, reached its reached its potential mm-hmm. and part part of it was due to the fact that we had a producer outside producer for the first time brown banister who kind of came in and he assessed the the strengths of the group who was good at what and maybe where somebody should you know not you know maybe just kind of step back it's like mm-hmm. it's like positioning people in a photo you know <laughs> that's um, good so we we needed that outside influence for for a change and it made a big difference that whole record is my favorite of the Whiteheart catalog, and yeah. um, and there's just there's a number of songs on there, but I, I would say maybe one of my favorite ones is the song "Over Me" on the mm. Freedom record.
in recent years, I've gone to do, you know, a thing at a church here and there with just Mark Gersmel and Rick Florian, and then the three of us will sing that song, and mm-hmm. it's it actually moves me, you know, each time, um, um, almost, and very emotional singing that song, and yeah, and um, so that that would probably be my favorite. Yeah, those, yeah. Those records. Well, you left Whiteheart in 1990, uh, but shortly before that, you actually scored your first charting single as a songwriter on the Billboard Country chart when Mel McDaniel released your song, You Can't Play the Blues in an Air-Conditioned Room. Now I got more money than I know how to use. Got everything a man could want, but I ain't got the blues. Success for me can only lead to my impending doom. Cause you can't play the blues in an air-conditioned room. Tell us about that one. That's something I wrote with a songwriter named Richard Fagan. And um, we just wrote that song one time having no idea what would happen to it. It went on hold a number of times. They always dangled that out in front of you and and get your hopes up and then walk away. At one point, it was going to be a duet between George Jones and Keith Richards. Wow, jeez. And then at some other point, it was going to be somebody and and bb king and then and then at the point at some point mel mcdaniel cut the song and it did you know enter the charts i don't remember how high it went or didn't go but but then also the blues brothers band with dan Aykroyd did a version of it too so yeah um but yeah in the six years that i wrote for polygram from 84 well actually the time i joined whiteheart actually yeah until i quit whiteheart i was writing for polygram music and i had two songs cut and it was the same song but a cut in country a cut in pop with the blues brothers band and then the rest of it was contemporary christian music that i was getting done myself because of my networking and right and um, yeah that was my start of my first publishing deal yeah yeah well and speaking of contemporary christian music i mean the band PFR had the number one song on Christian radio for 1994 with their recording of That Kind of Love, which you wrote with Jenny Yates. someone who has had great success writing contemporary Christian material, uh, but also country material, rock songs, pop hits, you know, obviously, uh, versatility is kind of part of your songwriting DNA. And I'm curious as a, as an artistic person, from your perspective, what are kind of some of the pros and cons of, of being capable of working within so many different genres? Well, I've got this broad spectrum of music and I'm just listening to stuff that I like. It doesn't matter what genre of music that it is. So I have a healthy um, group of influences that, you know, paint a wide, you know, variety, of, yeah. cut a wide swath, you know, of colors and and influences that show up in my writing, you know. And, sure. and when I met Paul McCartney a couple of years ago, and I, you know, after I met him and I walked away, somebody said to me what was that like and my friend that was with me said it was like meeting royalty and, I, mm-hmm. and for me I said it was like meeting music <laughs> because there's something about everything that guy has done that that 
winds up in most of what I've done just because I so much of my music was either his music or the music that he directly influenced. So, right. you know, there are some things that are that wind up in everything I do. Now, as far as whether or not it's a pro or a con, I mean, I would say, obviously, the, the pro is that I can, I, I see, um, you know, no, not as many limitations at, in as far as the genres that my music might wind up being. I can, you know, I've, I've written bluegrass songs for Ricky Skaggs, but I've got Bonnie Raitt's current single. Right. Yeah. You know, and I've had, uh, Eric Clapton do a song, but also an artist in country music do that song, but also a, what's Akon P. Diddy, I'm right. getting his names right, Mary Day <laughs> Blige, and uh, T-Pain. Hmm. Those four artists did change the world. Right. Well, you know, I, I, it's it's uh, funny that you bring that up, because I was just going to ask you about that. Change the world actually kind of is an, an example of a song that crosses genres. Winona Judd was the first artist to release it, yeah. but then when Eric Clapton recorded it in 96, I mean, it became an international phenomenon, and it won Grammy Awards for Song of the Year, Record of the Year, Best Male Pop Vocal Performance... You know, that's one of the songs that is so classic and so familiar that we kind of have to remind ourselves that it didn't just fall out of the sky, but somebody wrote it and that there actually was a creation process behind it. Can you tell us about the process of writing that song? When we wrote that song, it started off as just being a on, a, on some downtime during a session and Tommy Sims saying, is this a song this group could do? Because Wayne and I, Wayne Kirkpatrick and I were trying to to do uh, a record deal and right. we had a budget to record some songs from uh mca music publishing which i had to deal with for one year and so in the year 91 we we're in the studio recording these songs with chris McHugh and tommy sims my whiteheart buddies and wayne right. kirkpatrick and myself and tommy just like i said on some downtime said say fellas is this uh, an idea that might work for this group and played us the riff and he had a title and a melody started and I remember thinking, well, yeah, that sounds enough like McCartney that I like it. <laughs> and Wayne is Wayne is probably thinking, yeah, this sounds enough like Fogelberg that I like it. And Tommy's <laughs> probably thinking, this. I hope this doesn't sound too much like Stevie Wonder for these guys, you know. <laughs> right, so right. I'm just saying that at the point where even the start of this song is is happening in the middle of us, there, it's there are so many influences. Yeah. But the way the song was written was Tommy Wayne would ask Tommy at some point, and who knows, I can't remember how many months later, possibly. Hey, where do you have? Could you put on tape that idea that you played for us that day? So Tommy gave him the the, the nugget of the start of the idea, and Wayne would go away and write a lyric for a chorus and all but one line of the second verse, and then it would go dormant again. Hmm. And then and then at the point where We've got a label from New York that's been entertaining the idea of signing us for eight months, and they keep giving us these, give us 90 days, give us 60 days, give us 90 more days, you know. 
and we're playing them our stuff and saying, go back to the studio and give us a pop hit. You know, we can get you an alternative number one hit out of these songs, but we want a pop hit. Right. So we would go and try different things. Well, almost a year after Tommy played the original thing in the studio, I asked Wayne, I said, where, at what point is that song now? And he, So he gives me a tape and a lyric for what he's been doing. So now I take the thing and I finish the music. And I drive to Columbus, Ohio, where Tommy Sims, this is April of 92, by the way. Right. So it's a, it's a year after Tommy played us the idea of the, the riff. So now I've finished the music, and I think it's enough finish that I'm going to go demo this song with Tommy and meet him in Columbus, Ohio, where he's working on a church uh, choir album. <laughs> and we demo a track for Change the World. And it's all this you know, uh, sampled body, you know, noises done with just vocally into a Sure 57 mic for the percussion sounds, you know, right. kick drum, <clears throat> like huh. this, right? And <laughs> we got a, <laughs> that, there's a, even a laugh every, at the end of every bar. That's <laughs> cool. So we, we got, we make the track, I take the multi-track, put it in my car to head back to Nashville, and I burned a cassette of the track. And I finished writing the lyrics in the car ride on the on the way home from Columbus. Hmm. So I write the first verse and Wayne's mi- missing line of the second verse and get back to Nashville and put the vocal and an acoustic guitar on that demo. And that's that was our demo. That I can change the world I would be the sunlight in your universe You would think my love was really something And once that song just, you know, blew up, I mean, we're talking about 81 consecutive weeks in the top 20, if I'm not mistaken. How did Change the World change your world? I think I'll put it in Doug Howard's words. He said, thank you. He said, I no longer have to tell your story or your life story when I'm speaking about you to somebody. And I thought, what does that mean? You know, because, you know, publishers go to other writers or other publishers and say, hey, we need to get Gordon and Peter Frampton together. And so at the point where that is being instigated, they at, at one time they would go to Peter Frampton and say, this is Gordon Kennedy. His father is this man mm-hmm. who played on this, and Gordon has done this. He's been in this group. He's done this. And now they go to Peter Frampton and say, would you care to write with Gordon Kennedy? One of the writers on Eric Clapton's Changed the World. That's and, he, and Doug said that's all he had to that's say. That's all you got to right. say. Calling card. Yeah, yeah, and all, of course, all they had to tell me was, "Do you want to write with Peter Frampton?" <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. But I mean, so that it helped as far as opening a door, and sort of, I can say honestly, it not only does it open the door, it leaves it open. It puts mm. a, it puts a some a prop the door open, <laughs> if right, you will, right. for the rest of your life. You know, so yeah. that's something you don't. You don't really change. At some point, you do. You no longer are a Grammy award-winning songwriter, or you no longer have this song, you know, on the tip of everybody's tongue. And so, you know, here we are, 19 years after the Grammys, and I just did it on stage at the Ryman a few weeks ago with the Fisk Jubilee Singers as that's a celebration awesome. of their wow. 150th anniversary. Wow. That's so cool. You know, just so that that thing keeps keeps going. Yeah. 
Well, I want to hear a bit of uh, your own version of You Move Me, which you recorded in 2000. Oh, but you move me. You give me courage, I The contemporary Christian artist Susan Ashton recorded that song in 1996, and then Garth Brooks recorded it the following year, taking it to number three on the Billboard country chart. Um, how did Garth end up getting his hands on that one? Well, Garth became a fan of Susan Ashton's by, and this is the story, this is the honest truth. My brother Brian went out and opened for Garth Brooks for some, a couple of tours, and it was him and a guy named Dan Roberts, and they would call themselves uh, Chuck and Rodeo, I believe. And while Brian's out on the road with Garth, he walks up on the on the bus one day where Garth and a bunch of guys in the band are, and he had given Garth this Susan Ashton record. Right. So Garth has the, the CD and puts it in the CD player, and You Move Me is the first song on that CD. Hmm. Right. And everybody is sitting in the front lounge of the bus listening, and then that song ends, and then it starts to play the second song, and it gets about halfway through the second song, and somebody stands up and walks over and hits back back, back to the beginning of the CD hmm. and listens to You Move Me again. Right. This time, You Move Me ends, and another guy in the band gets up and backs it up wow. <laughs> without even letting the second song start. Yeah and hits the start of that song again, and Garth looked at my brother and said, uh-huh, that's what I thought. Hmm. Now, wow. now he calls Susan Ashton and says, hey, I, I, you know, I love this song that you have on this record called You Move Me. I was wondering if you'd mind if I recorded it. <laughs> <He Wow>. said, <laughs> and she said, absolutely not. You know who wrote it. He goes, no. And my, see, my brother hadn't even told it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> So he, he decided he was going to do that song before he knew that I wrote that with Pierce Pettis. Wow. wow. That's awesome. That's incredible. Well, you know, speaking of Garth Brooks, um, you contributed 10 songs to his Chris Gaines album, which for, for people that don't know, the, the Chris Gaines uh, moment in Garth Brooks' career was like a fictional rock star character that he created, um, kind of an alter ego. It was supposed to be developed into a movie project, but that never materialized. Um, I, I think, you know, as an experiment, it ended up leaving some people kind of scratching their heads, but the, the music was really solid. I mean, that album sold 2 million copies and included the top five hit Lost in You, which you wrote with your Change the World co-writers, Wayne Kirkpatrick and Tommy Sims. But I, I, I'm fascinated by this, this Chris Gaines project, and I, I would love to hear how you got involved with that and kind of the, the mindset that you entered into as a songwriter for that type of uh, project. Well, the way that, that it actually happened was I get a call from Garth Brooks one day and say, hey, I want you to come play on my album. I'm going to put you in the studio with this guy who just moved here from Australia. I think you guys would get along great. And I show up, and it's a guy named Keith Urban. <laughs> and so so just me and him sitting in there playing guitars together on a couple songs and, and uh, had a blast, had a blast uh, working with Keith. And, of course, anytime I get to spend time with Garth, it's, uh, you know, it's within just no time at all. You're saying to yourself, you know, this kind of is our Elvis right now. So it was just, it was fun. And this was, uh, I guess, early 99, I'm, I'm thinking. 
So as I'm leaving the studio that day, Garth said, oh, hey, listen, by the way, I need to get some songs from you. And he starts explaining to me the Chris Gaines project in the movie. It was going to be called The Lamb. Right. And he was talking about how, you know, this this pop star is going to get killed off by his own record label to drive up sales, you know, because the guy has died or whatever. Right. He says, tell me just a little bit about it. And then I said, okay, so you need you need some country songs. He goes, oh, no, no, no. He said, no, I need Eagles, Beatles kind of stuff. He's, you know, that stuff that you have. And, and I said, oh, really? Okay, so I went back to Polygram that day and made a CD of maybe 10 songs immediately and then sent them over to Jack's Tracks where he was working. Right. And that afternoon, I get a call, and he wants to put song two on hold. And I wow. went, oh, wow. I said, <laughs> but, then, but now here's me being a, a real idiot. I, I went, well, gosh, I, I would have thought he would have put song four on hold. <laughs> and then I get a, they get a call back about an hour later wanting to put song four on hold. And I realized... <laughs> Oh, he hadn't even heard that one yet wow. when he called the first time. So anyway, he dove into mine and Wayne and Tommy's catalog for every one of those songs on that record. And, um, I mean, it was it was the, the first one that he wanted to put his vocal on, and he didn't want to recut the tracks. He wanted to use our demos. So there's chairs squeaking and all kinds of junk <laughs> in that record. And In fact, there was one track during Mix when, when JB was mixing the record he called me in to listen to it and there's a whole dialogue with me and my son and my wife about he had opened the door while i was getting ready to put a guitar part on and she came in to tell me that he had made a stinky and it was it was it was on the in on the guitar track on the demo oh i never my gosh i never muted it because you don't hear it you know but right. just so he wouldn't let us record re-record anything he wanted to just put his vocal on it. and the first song he told me and wayne that he wanted to sing was lost in you mm. So Wayne and I were two things at the same time at this point. We're so excited that Garth Brooks wants to do some of our music, and we're also worried that how is he going to sing that song? Right. Yeah. You know, and Tommy had sung the demo and sounded like Philip Bailey or whatever. And, yeah. And so I'm thinking, how is Garth? And so Garth goes out on the vocal mic, just me and Wayne in the control room, and he starts singing that song, and we our jaws hit the floor. We looked at each other and went, Okay. Hmm. Who who is the who's the real guard? Heaven knows I'm head over heels at the shows. I played every field I suppose. But there's something about you when you're around, baby. I have found I get lost. Is right. this, is now I'm I'm asking myself at this point is is the country guy is that a character? Hmm. So, but anyway, that's how that record started. He just went into our catalog for all the music, and we went and did all this live stuff with him, TV yeah. shows, and well, it was a quite a ride to say the least. Yeah. And of course, he took a serious beating for it from because right. I mean, there's not you can't think of too many country artists or any that that the, their audience would let them do a. Ziggy Stardust kind of thing. Well, it's funny you say that because I, I was talking to Scott beforehand. I said Ziggy Stardust is the closest thing that I can think of. Yeah. That that right. anybody even tried, honestly. But you know, there's also that 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 degree of of if you've made as much money as Garth Brooks, you've had as many hits, you've done, uh, you, you know, you, you've you've 
done everything there is to do and broken every record there is in the country world, why not jump off the cliff and go with some wild experiment to do yeah. something completely unprecedented? Well, and what if he's one of us? Somebody that just loves all kinds of music. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. just wants you a know? chance to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, another one of your songs from the Chris Gaines album, uh, It Don't Matter to the Sun, hit number 24 on the country chart under Garth's own name. And then in 2006, Garth and Trisha Yearwood were back on the charts with another of your songs, Love Will Always Win. So, you know, Garth has obviously been an important figure in your songwriting success, but um, that Love Will Always Win was actually originally recorded by Faith Hill and was the title track to the international version of the album that was released here in the States as Faith back in 1998. And there seems to be this theme of your songs being recorded by one artist and then going on to even greater success when recorded by another artist, you know, whether that be Winona and, and, and Eric Clapton or Susan Ashton and Garth or the situation with, with Faith and then going on to, you know, to Garth and Trisha. Um, it's kind of rare, I think, for a songwriter to have songs that kind of have multiple lives like that. And I'm curious if you have any theory on why that seems to have you know, really worked out well for you. You know, I, I'm not sure I can explain artists and their train of thought and um, what, what makes them make the decisions. You know, I have had enough things happen in my life where I will second guess things or get disappointed or 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 get upset or hey I thought this was the plan or whatever and change the world was one of those things you know we we were writing that song because we wanted a record deal mm. yeah but can I'm, I try to compare I got on the one hand this group that we were doing at the time called the mute boots of labor we could have put that song out and given the copyright for change the world the equivalent of a decent funeral or on the <laughs> other hand we don't get our way and get our record deal, and Eric Clapton does it. And you saw what happened with that. Okay, yeah. which one is better? <laughs> right. And so I see this happen enough. Another one is, uh, there's a song called I Will Not Be Broken. Wayne, Tommy, and myself got asked to go watch the DreamWorks animated film about the horse called Spirit. Right. But we were told all the music that you'll hear during the movie is Brian Adams. But we were told at the end of the film, the music supervisor stood up in front of us and said, now we need you three guys to write us the end title for this. So we wrote this song called I Will Not Be Broken and sent it to them. They loved it. And then after about two weeks, communication ceased, Hmm. completely stopped. And we found out that everybody everybody at at the film company liked that song except for one person, Brian Adams. Oh, right. So... I think that you know there was gonna there was a threat to take away his other music if he didn't write all of it and all this stuff. So yeah. we they didn't like I said they just showed us the door. Jeez. And but what happened with that song instead, guys, is Bonnie Raitt heard it and we had already had one single with her and now she's doing a record called Souls Alike, and she hears I will not be broken and puts it out as the first single from Souls Alike. Yeah. We go to the Ryman to hear her do in the concert. She calls us by name from stage. No, that's cool. And she, and she said, these guys are the greatest songwriters in the world. And she said, this song has been so important to me in a year that she lost a brother, her parents, and the Katrina hurricane happened. She said, this has been such a healing song for me. And then she sang, I Will Not Be Broken.
would anybody argue that the right thing happened with that song too? Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we kind of make our plans and do what we know how to do to the best of our ability, even when you're not getting paid for it or nothing on the horizon that might right. ever be fruitful as far as, you know, making it worth your time as far as money. But you still do this. You feel driven to do this. And and then you see Bonnie Raitt on stage say that. Yeah. And, yeah. and then that, that, that helps. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yes. Sure. Um, well, you know, I mean, you've, you've had songs on, as we've said before, country pop charts. I mean, e- even after um, these songs we were just talking about, Faith Hill hit the country singles charts again with It Will Be Me in 99. You had a country top 20 with the Clark Family Experiences, Meanwhile, Back at the Ranch. And, of course, all at that same time, you're, you're producing albums and you're playing sessions um, as a guitarist. In the midst of juggling all these hats... How do you still find time to write? Do you make that a disciplined approach where you just set aside the time to do it, or, or do you kind of just write when inspiration strikes you? Well, co-writing is a thing that you schedule, obviously, because more than one person, more than myself is involved. But the other, when it's just me, it's almost like I'm never not writing. Hmm. I will always be speaking into the phone ideas, playing chord progressions and melodies and singing melodies over progressions. And to me, it's almost like describing songwriting as being a river that is running. I mean, Mm. it's running. And you can either just sort of stick your toe over in it every once in a while, or you can just dive into it. And and it's going to keep moving. It'll keep moving. And I don't feel like I've ever experienced any kind of a creative, there's nothing there. There's something there. You just have to get it, you know? Yeah. Well, in, in 2009, you were back on the country singles chart with Carrie Underwood's recording of uh, The More Boys I Meet. But I want to ask you about a, a, another project that came along shortly after that, which was um, your work as co-writer and producer on everything, uh, on Ricky Skaggs' critically acclaimed 2010 album Mosaic, which was nominated for a Best Pop Contemporary Gospel album at the Grammys. And, you know, that project was a, a little different than the typical Ricky Skaggs release and, and put him to some interesting sonic territory. Um, tell us how the, the two of you began working together and, and just a little bit about the, the process of, of how that album unfolded. The Skaggs thing... I had written a song called Come On Out with Phil Madeira for the Hornsby Skaggs project, Bruce Hornsby, Ricky Skaggs project, which was right. phenomenal. Yeah. And a couple of years after that project, I get a call from a fellow who works for Skaggs out at his studio, and the guy's name's Lee Groich. And Lee called me up and said, hey, man, you got any songs for Ricky's next record? Well, come on. If you're a songwriter, <laughs> there's only one answer to that question. Yeah, you know, absolutely. it doesn't matter who's asking. Oh yeah, sure, I got it. <laughs> so I, so I said, I'll get, to, I'll make you a CD. And so I hung up and I started going through my stuff, thinking, what do I have that could be done bluegrass? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm looking through all this stuff and I'm making a CD. And then just kind of on a, on a lark, I, I decide to put three songs on the front of the CD that are songs that, at this point, in, in the back of my mind, this is 2009, mind you, in the back of my mind are slated for if I would ever do another Dogs of Peace record. Right. So it's like, you know, completely away from what Ricky's looking for. Yeah. But I thought, I know what kind of a spiritual guy Ricky is, and he might just enjoy hearing this and, and hearing where I'm at musically these days or whatever. Yeah. So I put those on the CD first, and then I put all these other songs that I thought he might consider you know sent the, and i met lee and gave him the cd and a couple of weeks later he called me he said well i listened to the cd and 
he goes, man, I love those first three songs. In fact, the song title, You'll Find God, is my son's favorite song. Every time we get in the car, Dad, you'll find God every day. Hmm. And he said, but Ricky's, that's not what Ricky's looking for. So he said, if you don't mind, I'm going to make another CD and put the balance of the tunes on a new CD and give that to Ricky. And I said, that's great. You know, yeah. thanks for spending the time to do this. So now two months go by. And I get a call from Lee, and he says, well, Ricky never heard that CD that I made for him. I said, oh. He said, but he got a hold of the original one you sent and heard it, and he wants to do those first three songs. <laughs> wow. and, and, and so I said, what? How is he going to do those bluegrass? And he said, no, well, he's going to call you later today. And so I got a call from Ricky that afternoon. He said, son, I love them three, first three songs. And I said, how are you going to do those bluegrass, Ricky? And he said, I'm not. I'm going to do them just like your demo. In fact, I'm going to need you to come produce this record with me. you got a handle on that Beatles Wow. Wow, so cool. And so that's how that record started, and yeah. it's the most powerful project I've ever been a part of in my life. And the stuff that wow. we, he and I, witnessed every single day in the studio, I, I describe it as a season of life in which God was choosing to make himself obvious rather than this kind of veiled in mystery and just right. some days the things would make you cry, some days they would make you laugh. That's that's just one of those things where, again, because of being a songwriter, I got to live something that well, I will never forget. Yeah. Well, and you got to come up with songs like Return to Cinder, which was nominated for the Best Gospel Song Grammy. In time the body will succumb and Go the faithful servant With chisel when I'm gone, return to cinder on my stone. Return to cinder on my stone. And my my story about that is is very brief. I was doing a, a luncheon, playing with Tommy Sims. We were going to play for a group of people in Washington D.C. We'd gone over to represent Nashville and the visitors and uh, convention bureau here in Nashville take us from time to time and will put us out in front of audiences to sway their business, you know, bring them to Nashville, their convention business and everything. And we love it because it's an honor for us to get to represent our town that way. Sure. But Tommy and I were just about to walk out on stage in front of a group in D.C. and he just, you know, struck up a conversation. He said, G.K., he goes, man, did your dad play on Elvis Return to Cinder? And I said, no, he he played on Good Luck Charm though, but so no, and so he goes, oh, he didn't play on Return to Cinder, and I said no, but I want that on my tombstone, and it wow. and it just it hit me that fast when he said the phrase Return to Cinder, yeah, and I wrote that lyric, took it to Ricky, and said, Ricky, I think this needs to be the last song on the record, and he took it and read it, and said, you're right, this this is the last song on the record. I said, well, why don't you write the music to it because he hadn't written anything for the record he didn't seem interested in trying to and so he kept it for a week or two and then came back said ain't nothing falling out of the sky you just need to finish it you know and, <laughs> and so i finished i finished that song but that's how it got started yeah that's amazing another artist that you've had a special relationship with is is peter frampton and you co-wrote most of the songs on his 2003 album now and you won a grammy for your production work on the 2006 instrumental album fingerprints which includes the song float which you co-wrote and on which you're featured 
did you first begin working with with Peter, and what's the dynamic like um, in terms of how your songwriting collaborations work? Um, well, my youngest brother Shelby was having lunch with publisher Bobby Reimer. Right. They they were together one day having lunch, and and they determined that. And again, not too long after the success of Change the World, we should get Peter and Gordon together, not Peter Asher, Gordon <laughs> right, Waller. Peter Gordon. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, so in 1999, I went to Peter Peter Francis' house over here in Brentwood, and um, got along fabulously from the beginning with this mm. guy. He's he's a very charming person, very generous. So we wrote you know, started writing some things together, some things that would wind up on the Now record. I think the very first thing we ever wrote together, though, was, again, it was another Chris Gaines uh, sort of scenario where there was this movie that was going to happen. It never did happen, mm. but um, we got an opportunity to write a couple of songs for Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous movie. And for that, I pulled Wayne oh. in to write as a trio, and we wrote two songs for that soundtrack. And so we're often running as a writing thing, and we just kind of became best of friends. And for some reason or another now, for going on 17 years, he I'm this guy that he goes to. Yeah. Anytime something comes up where he needs to write something for something, or anytime it's a, hey, they want you to come be on Fox and Friends, or and now I've just done two acoustic tours with him where it's just me and him on stage playing all his hits and Change the World, by the way. Which really? That will give you an, uh, an indication of how generous this guy is. Mm, yeah. The fact that he he lets that and and wants that to happen every night. Of course, he plays his behind off on it. You know. <laughs> yeah. He he becomes my band for three and a half minutes every that's night cool. on the show. But that's cool. So no, I that's how we got started, and the process itself is it's it's almost too easy. Hmm. It's almost too easy because the guy is is at no shortage for chord progressions and this things that are distinctively him. You know, I asked him at some point when we were working together because I've always thought, even back when the live album came out and I'm in high school, but I'm like, man, there's something different about this guy's playing. And I asked him, I said, what is it that makes you stand away from Jimmy Page, Clapton, all these English great rock guitar players I said, well, who is your main influence? Because all those guys would say probably, you know, the Delta Blues. And, and uh, he said, Django Reinhardt is a gypsy jazz player. Yeah, interesting. And when he says, hey, I've got these chords to see if we can make a song out of it, I'm not going to be hearing the run-of-the-mill Billy chord progression. It's going right. to be something that's going to inspire me and throw me for a loop yeah. and be challenging and exciting all at the same time because he just comes from such a different... There's a there's a deep well there when it comes to the guitar and and music with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there are a ton of other interesting cuts we could talk about. I mean, Alison Krauss's version of Maybe, which was a single for her back in 2000. Uh, then there was It Will Be Me, which was the opening track from Kristen Chenoweth's album As I Am in 2005. And then, of course, there's the Bonnie Raitt stuff, which you talked about. I think she's done like five of your songs over her last few albums, including Gypsy and Me, her latest single, which is number one on the Americana charts. So there's a lot of stuff going on. But uh, before we let you go, I want to ask you about your most recent project. I know it's something that is really near and dear to your heart. You're both writer and artist on this one, kind of getting your old band back together, Dogs of Peace, for this most recent album, Heal. 
Well, uh, you know, over the years as a songwriter, I mean, I go and perform Bluebird Cafe, different kinds of songwriter uh, in the round performances, a lot of charity work as a songwriter. And over the course of many years now, I get people saying, "You should, don't you have a record? You should have a solo record. And I've never been as driven to do that as I am to do something like this Dogs of Peace record. And, of course, the, the record Speak was 20 years ago, and it, I would say it took us a good three and a half years to do this record just because of uh, there are so many other things we're working on that it, it was spread out over a few three and a half years making it. But, you know, it, simply put, it's just that we know something special happens when these five guys, and I'm including Jeff Balding, who who engineered, mixed, and co-produced the, the first record, along with John Hammond on drums, Blair Masters, keyboards, Jimmy Lee Slos on bass, and myself, guitar, right. and Jimmy and I would do the vocals. Um, there's something unique and special that happens when this vibe get together that doesn't seem to happen anywhere else that we're attached, mm. individually, or even if you took two or three of these guys, you know. Um, so we we just knew how, you know, we felt about that first record, and, you know, it came out in 1996, to very little fanfare, and so we sort of felt like the industry sort of politely just kind of showed us the door, and thanks guys, but no thanks, And but then, you know, it's the same thing with the Chris Gaines record, you do something like that, and over the years, people come up to you going crazy about the album, and, huh. and we, you start to realize that people, that people that heard this record loved it, you know, there are guys in Christian music acts that are out there in Christian music that would list us as the, the reason why they've gotten into this. Wow. And so we hear that from just enough people like that to think, maybe what we did back then wasn't so unimportant after <laughs> all. And so that's what made us sort of dare each other to do another record again. And if nothing else, hey, if you leave me to my own devices, that's what's going to come out of yeah. me. From the solo projects to the huge global hits to the album cuts, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us and share your experience and your perspective um, and the stories behind your career. Thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. If I can reach the stars